0: Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter of grace who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all there is a true and better jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we like jacob only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us there is a true and better joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, Who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb. Innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, it is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus.
1: Back as I was growing up, my family always had Bibles around our house, but honestly, I never really took much interest in the Bible. I remember when I I would go to church with my family, we would um, hear readings from four different sections of Scripture, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, a section from the Psalms, and a section from from the Gospels, but I would always zone out during those times. I'd always be thinking of other things, perhaps as some of you may be beginning to do right now. But the reality is, I didn't really care much about the Bible. I didn't know what God had to do with my life. I remember when I was probably about nine or ten or so, I received a Bible from our church. It was called a Young Reader's Bible. It was this big, thick, hardcover Bible that had the entire scriptures in it, but in a translation, it was relatively easy for a young child uh, to read and to understand. And I remember the day I received it, I was kind of excited. Like this old, my own Bible, I had an old King James Bible before that I never read. Um, but I thought, hey, maybe I should read this thing. So my family was driving around in our van on the afternoon I received it. And I decided I'm going to read it to my family. So I started where you typically start a book. start started at the beginning, Genesis 1-1. Just started reading out loud to my family. I was very proud that I was old enough by that point. I could read uh, pretty well, so I'm reading along, reading the creation account. Get to Genesis 2, verse 25. Genesis 2:25 says, "Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame." Now, think about how that would sound to a little nine or ten year old. Here, here's what happened. I'm reading along. Adam and Eve were. I'm done. Maybe Adam and Eve felt no shame of being naked, but I felt shame when I saw that word. I didn't want to read that word. I was embarrassed, so I said, "I'm done." Uh, my parents tried to prod me to keep on reading, but I said, "No, nope, I'm done." And as I look back on that, those two chapters of Genesis that I read when I was nine or 10 years old were probably the largest section of Scripture that I read on my own volition until I was in my 20s. Now, I, I, I was raised to respect the Bible to kind of revere the Bible, but honestly, I didn't really care that much about God. And I, I saw the Bible as kind of irrelevant, kind of outdated, kind of confusing to say the least with all those strange names and strange things that were from a different time and a different place. And as I talk with people about the Bible today, I see that, you know, it's such a common experience that people feel intimidated or confused when it comes to understanding the Bible. And on the surface, this, this makes sense. In many different ways, because the Bible was written in a very different time to very different cultures. It doesn't read like a normal book. It's actually 66 different books put together within one cover, and these books were written over hundreds of years. Some of them are letters, some of them are biographies or histories, some of them are, are books of poetry or of proverbs. And there are some parts of scripture that just seem plain weird. I mean, think about the prophecies of some of the prophets, some of the visions they have, or even think about the entire book of Revelation. If you've read through Revelation, especially maybe the first time you read through it, you might be like, what in the world is going on here? I don't understand this one bit. But we have to understand that the Bible, as the video said, is not a series of disconnected stories. There is a cohesive storyline that runs throughout, and it's the story from beginning to end of God's love for us, that culminates and centers on Jesus Christ. This is something I didn't understand until relatively recently, but, but all the books of Scripture, all 66 of them, all testify and point to Jesus Christ. Now, today we are going to be looking at a passage of Scripture, uh, actually beginning a series on a new book of Scripture. It's not a new book of Scripture. It's a book of Scripture that's new to us right now. Uh, it's been in there for a long time, but it's a, it's a book... In many ways, it seems very straightforward. It's about ordinary people just like you and me. But God does extraordinary things through them. Now, it reads much like a story you'd see in Reader's Digest. I mean, it's relatively short. It's about a family who experiences significant heartache and trials and challenges. And then they come through that, uh, experience great love and redemption and new life. It's really a really neat story, but it's not just a Reader's Digest type of story. It's, it's a story that is found in God's inspired Word. And it's a story that I believe is in Scripture because of its connection to Jesus. Now, it's a story from the Old Testament. You may be wondering, okay, it's Old Testament, a thousand years before the time of Christ. How does it relate to Jesus? Well, hopefully over the course of the next four weeks— You will see how it does relate to Jesus. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth 1. Now, if you're wondering where Ruth is, it's relatively close to the beginning of the Bible. Um, You can use your table of contents to help out. Uh, The order of the books there at the beginning goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. Ruth is this little tiny book, four chapters long, 80 some verses. It's tucked in the middle of a bunch of big, long, lengthy books. But the message of the book of Ruth far outweighs its tiny size. And I want, uh, before we dive in, I want to give us a little bit of historical background of, of where this took place and when it took place. The very first verse of the book of Ruth says, In the days when the judges ruled. So it's the days when the judges ruled. And these judges were very different than the judges we think of today in the, in the court system. Let me give you, again, some historical background. Many of you have heard of Moses. Moses was used by God to lead Israel out of, uh, out of slavery from Egypt and led Israel to the edge of the Promised Land. After Moses passed away, Joshua, a young man, took over leadership of Israel and actually led Israel into the promised land. And all uh, things were going pretty well until about 1200 AD or so when Joshua passed away. And then society in Israel went into chaos. Tribes within Israel started fighting against one another. Uh, Outside nations started to invade Israel and conquer the land there. Uh, There was spiritual turmoil as people over and over and over kept turning away from God. But as the people of Israel were oppressed and afflicted, eventually they would wake up and call out to God and say, God, help us. And in those times, God would send what were called judges to help deliver Israel. These judges, like I said, they weren't the types of judges we think about. They were judges who brought judgment and justice to the land. Oftentimes they were military leaders who would would help overthrow the oppressors or they throw out the foreign nations who, were, who had invaded Israel, and they helped establish um, a, a healthy society again to call people back to God. And if you want to read more about this, you can read the book of Judges, which occurs just before Ruth. But we see that the, 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 the circumstances that take place in the book of Ruth took place during the time when the Judges ruled. So, so historically, that was somewhere between the time of about 1200 B.C. and 1050 B.C. So it was about 3,000 years ago or about 1,000 years before the time of Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig in to chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. Our Father, we thank you that we have your word that can teach us, rebuke us, correct us in trance in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. And God, we thank you that these words that were written some 2,500 to 3,000 years ago are still relevant to our lives today. God, I pray that you will show us in a fresh way today the relevancy of these words to our life. Show show us, Lord, how these events that took place so many years ago relate to Jesus and relate to us today. And Lord, as we're coming to you in prayer, uh, we know that the the beginning of this book is going to have some very challenging times. We know there are challenging times going on all over this world here today. And I think many of our hearts are especially broken for what's taking place over in Iraq right now with the ISIS militant group there and uh, the the hundreds of thousands of men and women and children who are um, undergoing severe threats and persecution and even death, Lord. We pray that you will give them strength, that you will be softening hearts all around this situation, Lord. Please give wisdom to the world leaders in how to respond to this situation I pray that those who are doing the persecuting will be convicted of what they are doing and will help turn this thing around, Lord. We pray that you will be glorified in this circumstance. And we thank you, Lord, that we can have hope in you. And I pray that the people who are going through these, these incredibly difficult, trying times will find their hope in Jesus Christ as well. So, Lord, now as we turn back to the book of Ruth, and which does begin with very challenging times in this young family's life, We pray that you will show us, Lord, how we can cling to you through those times and really see a greater significance than what's just going on here and now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in chapter 1, we're going to look at three different scenes that unfold. And we're going to spend most of the time on the first scene, uh, which begins in verses 1 through 5, which I'm going to read right now. It really sets the stage for what takes place during the rest of the book. It says in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So we see the book of Ruth opens with a nightmare, really, for this young family that's unfolding. It, it starts with a very hungry family. I mean, it's a relatively ordinary family. I mean, you have the father, of Limelech, another mother, of Naomi, and their two sons, but they are hungry. There's a famine in the land, which is kind of ironic because the town they live in, called Bethlehem, the name of that town literally means house of bread. This was an area known for its agricultural abundance. But there was a famine, and so they were hungry along with other people around there. And so they decided, you know what? We need to go to a place that has food so that we can live, so we can survive. And so they figured out, okay, the closest place that has food is this place called Moab. Now let me show you a map to just show you where they went. Uh, You can see they started in Bethlehem. They went up to the northeast, then south, around the Dead Sea, south into Moab. But Moab is a place, it wasn't a part of Israel, it was a place that a faithful Israelite should never really desire to live. Odds are good, if you're an Israelite and you go live in Moab, it's not going to be good for you. It's kind of like if you are a recovering alcoholic, and you decide, oh, I'm going to rent an apartment um, on top of a bar, that's probably not a great environment for you to go into because of the temptations there. It's kind of similar to how if, if you have teenage children, if they want to have a sleepover, um, you probably would not have your teenage children be a part of a sleepover that's a co-ed sleepover that is unsupervised. It's just simply not a good idea because of the temptations that would be there. It's the same type of thing for, for this Israelite family going to live in Moab, the temptations there are too great. And in fact, uh, God had actually said many times to the Israelites, don't go and live with these foreign nations because if you do that, you're going to be influenced by them and drawn away from me to worship their types of gods. Moab through the years had certainly been no friend to Israel. Over and over and over, they had militarily attacked Israel during the, even during the time of the Judges. In addition, there was one time where a Moabite king hired a prophet, Balaam, to pronounce curses upon Israel. And Moab was a very pagan nation, worshiping many different gods besides the one true God. And so this was a very dangerous place for this family to go spiritually, but it was a place that had food. And so they thought, okay, we're going to go there. Now, there is an interesting theme that runs throughout the book of Judges, and in particular, a particular phrase. And one of the places we see this phrase in the book of Judges is the very last verse, chapter 21, verse 25. It says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This was a theme during the time of the Judges. There was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that appears, at least on the surface, to be what this family is doing. They're doing what seems to make sense from a human level, but they're going to a place where there are all kinds of opportunities for temptation and for compromise in Moab. So they head over there. They they begin to find some food, but something bad happens very quickly after their time there. The husband, the Limelech, passes away. Now, I, I have not had that type of experience, thankfully, um, of losing a spouse. Um, I hope it's a long time before either one of us experienced that type of thing. But I know that a number of you here have had that experience, the pain of losing a spouse. And you think about what that would be like for Naomi, this sense of, of emptiness, perhaps even of, of loneliness, of not having her life partner with her any longer. And here she is in a foreign land. She doesn't have extended family. She doesn't have friends to support her. She is here relatively alone, except for her two sons. So she and this family experience a great loss right away, but at least she still has her young sons. They're old enough by this point where they can help provide for the family. So they are still there, still giving a sense of hope, and they get married. Now, who do they marry? Well, I mean, it makes sense they marry Moabite women. Makes sense at least from a human perspective— Though God specifically said, do not intermarry with people of other nations because you will be led astray by their gods. But these two sons, they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But this is a bit of a dangerous situation um, because it's natural that anytime you invite someone from a different type of culture into your household like this, especially in the context of marriage, Odds are good they're going to be bringing their values and their practices there. And in this context, they're going to bring bring their worship of foreign false deities into your household. And that's why God made it very clear. Do not intermarry with people of other cultures because then they're going to to influence you to want to, um, to bow down to their gods, which are really no gods at all. You think about it. It's just natural. Here's kind of funny illustration now what in the world is this thing doing in our house vikings hat uh, my son wears it all the time here's how it came into our house i married a woman from minnesota a foreign land (laughs) she brought with her a love for the vikings i grew up in missouri which to you is probably another foreign land um Oftentimes sports teams can function kind of as gods for us, where many people tend to bow down and worship their sports team, or at least to give a sense of allegiance and care and value to their sports team that we should only give to God. But the reality is this type of hat, this type of apparel, uh, you may see it if you're a diehard Packers fan, you may see it as heresy or apostasy or blasphemy or something like that. But this is in our house because I married a woman from another land that cares about the Vikings. If you are here from this land, odds are good you probably care about the Packers. It's the same type of thing for— and I'll do that if that makes some of you feel better. <laughs> this is the type of thing that happens when you invite foreign people into your household or into your marriage or into your family, that they are going to bring the worship of foreign gods in there as well. And you can't help but be influenced by them. I have cheered for the Vikings more um, since meeting Shelley than I ever knew I would before. Um, that's just what happens. But here are these two young men from Israel who go to this foreign land of Moab and marry these two Moabite women. And this is a ripe situation for compromise and temptation to turn away from God. And then there's something that happens. Then we don't know the reasons. We don't know what exactly um, why it happened. But these two young men who had married these women, after about 10 years of marriage, they both die. Malan and Kilian, they both pass away. Again, we don't know the circumstances, why. The author of Ruth doesn't tell us why. Uh, we can speculate, but, you know, we don't necessarily need to do that. It doesn't help out that much. But they pass away. And you picture Naomi here at the face of this tragedy. She's sitting here over their graves, not just the first grave. That was her husband in Moab, but the second and the third graves. I and mean, you just picture, I mean, think about what would she look like there next to the second and third grave of her sons? I and mean, would she have tears coming down her eyes, or would the sorrow be so great by that point that she's so emotionally spent that there are more, no more tears that are going to come? I mean, think about this. She has lost everything. I mean, she's, she left behind her family. She left behind her friends. She left behind what is familiar and comfortable to her to come to this land. Now all it is is Naomi. And her two daughters-in-law, and that's it. I mean, think about that heartache that she would be going through. And, and her heart was certainly not unaffected by this. Jumping down to verses 20 and 21, we see a little bit of what's going on in her heart. She does go back to Bethlehem. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But as she goes there, she says, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? See, Naomi is a name that means lovely or it means uh, pleasant. And she hears that name and says, don't call me Naomi. Don't say that I'm lovely because my life is anything but lovely. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter because God has made my life very bitter. The path I've been on is very bitter. So don't call me lovely. Call me bitter now. You see, I mean, this is definitely affecting her, and justifiably so. I mean, if you've experienced significant loss, especially of close loved ones, you've probably experienced these same types of feelings of the questions, the whys, the the God, what's going on here? I don't understand this. I thought you were full of grace and love, and now this is going on. But that's the circumstance that Naomi finds herself in. I want to transition in just a moment to scene two. Scene one is certainly a nightmare for this little family, a little family that is now a family of one with two daughters-in-law. But I want to begin the transition looking at verse 6. It says that when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And so they get word that the famine over in Bethlehem in Israel is nearing an end. There's food there again. So now they're going to move Back to Bethlehem. Now there's a word there, uh, the word return. Um, this is a key word in Ruth chapter 1. There is a Hebrew word behind this, Ruth, along with the rest of the Old Testament, was originally written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word there is the word shuv. The word shuv means to repent or to turn. This is a word that occurs 12 times here in the first chapter of Ruth. There is a lot of turning. A lot of repenting going on here in Ruth chapter 1. As we'll see here in a few minutes, it's a very theologically rich word as well for what is taking place. But what we see right here is that Ruth and her daughters-in-law are preparing to shuv, to repent, and to go back to Bethlehem. But along the way, Naomi realizes, you know what? It's not really fair for my daughters-in-law to go back with me because their homeland is here in Moab. Their family is here in Moab. Moab, everything they're familiar with is here in Moab. And so she has a frank conversation with them and says, "You know what? Daughters-in-law, you all should just stay here. Go back to your family's home and find another husband here. Because if you go back with me, there's nothing I can offer you. I don't I mean I'm not going to have more sons, even if I do." Are you going to really wait for them to grow up so you can marry them? So she says, no, stay here. And think about it. I mean, think about, for instance, if if you go into work tomorrow and your boss comes to you and says, you know what, we really like you. I mean, I care about you a lot, but our company is going down the tubes. And it's probably good for you to start looking for another place of employment. And they're saying this not to try to lay you off, not saying, not trying to get rid of you, not because they don't like your performance, but it's just a conversation among friends just saying, you know what? Our company's going down the tubes. This is going to be bankrupt in a couple of months. It's, it's in your best interest and all of our best interests to be preparing for the next step, to look for other employment. Hots are good at that time. What would you do? You'd probably heed that advice and begin looking. And it's the same type of circumstance here for Ruth and for Orpah. They're told, you know what? You can go with me back to Bethlehem, but I don't have anything to offer you there. Instead, you should stay here in Moab, a place where at least there's a little bit more hope for you, where your family is, where hopefully you can find another husband and a new life. So it's entering a decision time for Ruth and for Orpah, these two daughters-in-law. Decision time. That's scene two here in this passage. Now, we have to recognize decisions make a difference in our lives. They add up. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about how the accumulation of decisions over time really does shape our lives. I think about myself. I'm, I've been pastor here at Friedens for about five years. And I, When I look back over the course of my life, I look back, say, to the year 2000. I myself moved to the foreign land of Minnesota. Um, and if I had not moved to Minnesota for my last two years of college in the year 2000, I don't think I would be here today because I can trace a pretty clear line that I probably would not have followed had I not moved to Minnesota. That was a decision then. I had no idea it was going to lead to me being here now. But that's what decisions do. They make a difference in our lives in the course of where we are going. And so it's decision time for these two young women. Are they going to stay in Moab or are they going to go into the unknown future with Naomi Back to Bethlehem. Now let me show you what this decision uh, is kind of like. Here here it is. Basically, you could go to Bethlehem and have the Lord, but not have anything else guaranteed to you. So it's kind of like the Lord plus nothing in Bethlehem. Or you can stay in Moab and have something. I mean, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but at least you have your family. You have familiar surroundings. You have something, not the Lord, but you have something in Moab. Which one are you going to choose? Orpah? One of the daughters-in-law? Decide. you know what? I'm going to go with what seems safe, what seems to have the most chance of success. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to choose something back here and hope for a better life. I won't have... The Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, but I'll still be here in Moab. So Orpah makes that decision, and we never hear from her again in Scripture. Ruth steps out in faith and makes the decision to say, "You know what? I'm going to follow Naomi. I'm going to follow follow the Lord. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'm going to go to Bethlehem and see." It's a step of faith. And that's what Naomi chooses to do. Let's read uh, beginning in verse 14 of Ruth 1. Uh, They have this conversation, and Naomi says, hey, you need to go back and stay in Moab. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So Naomi relents. She says, okay, come on. Now, what has just taken place here is decision time for Ruth. Orpah went the other direction, but for Ruth, this was essentially a conversion to following the one true God. We see in her language here, she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. This shows a commitment to the Lord that she is making. Now, you have to understand a little bit of Old Testament context to understand the full significance of Ruth's statement here. But there's this phrase that that recurs throughout the Old Testament. For instance, we see it in, in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. God says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. It's this phrase that occurs over and over. You will be my God. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so Ruth, evidently she's heard that phrase somewhere. And she says, now your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She's identifying herself. With God. And we see this even more clearly when she says, May the Lord deal with me, be ever so severely, if I don't do these things. She uses the very personal, intimate name Yahweh here. This is the most powerful, personal, intimate name of God in Israel. And you see it because um, in our English translations, when you see in the Old Testament the name Lord in all capital letters, behind that is the Hebrew name Yahweh. And so she isn't just saying generically, I'm going to follow God. She's saying, I'm going to follow this one true God, Yahweh. It's kind of like us today in our culture. You know what? People talk about God all the time. God's kind of popular to talk about at times in a generic sense. I mean, anyone can say, hey, I like God. I value God. I want to make God a big part of my life. But it gets much more specific when you say, I love Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I want Jesus to be a big part of my life. Because Jesus clarifies who you are talking about clarifies the content of what you mean when you say God and that is what, what Ruth is doing here when she says when she refers to the Lord Yahweh by name she's identifying herself and committing herself to him and also not only is she making a commitment to the Lord but she's making a change in her life direction her lifestyle um, look at this I mean she's leaving behind everything that she's ever known going to a land that she's never been to. The only person she will know there is Naomi. There's not a future guaranteed to her there, at least from a human perspective. But she's no longer doing what is right in her own eyes. She's now seeking to do what is right in God's eyes and to follow him. And we need to recognize that for every single one of us, we have to come to this point of decision as well. Of, are we going to do what's right in our own eyes or in the world's eyes, or are we going to do what's right in God's eyes, There is a turning that must take place in each one of our lives, a repentance. That without that repentance, without turning from our own ways to God's ways, we're never going to have true life. We're never going to be on the path that God has for us. I mean, any one of us can follow that way of Orpa, of staying with what's comfortable and what's popular and what makes sense from a human perspective. But that's not necessarily God's way. So the call for us is to turn from our own path, to repent, to shuv, to turn back on the God's path. And that is what Ruth has done right here, that she has turned and said, now I'm putting a stake in the ground. I'm going to follow the Lord wherever he leads me. I'm going to trust that he will provide for me. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who think, you know what, just by kind of roughly associating myself with God, that should be good enough. Just by going to church on a regular basis, just by doing a few religious things, that should be enough. But that's not enough. I think about a few weeks or a couple months ago, my family was in Colorado Springs, and we went to visit the Air Force Academy out there. There are a couple pictures, that that cool chapel they have there. Um, None of us entertained any thought that simply by being there in the Air Force Academy for an hour or two, that we are now going to be a part of the Air Force. That we're going to be able to fly airplanes. That's not the way it works, is it? It takes a very big commitment and a change in life direction if you want to become an Air Force cadet and then an officer and then be able to fly planes. I do think our son may have thought that maybe he could fly those airplanes. I mean, he really wanted to, he definitely was talking about them a lot. But you know, it takes a commitment and it takes a change in lifestyle if you want to join the Air Force. It's the same thing if you want to become a follower of Christ. It doesn't. It's not just something where you sit here and just think, okay, I'm in church on a regular basis, and that will make me a Christian. That will make me a Christ follower. No, it's a commitment that leads to a change in life direction. And that's the decision that we all have to come to. Jesus said, if anyone would come, to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the commitment of following Christ. And this is a picture of what Ruth did as well. Now, the name of Jesus wasn't yet known, but she was following Yahweh. She was following the one true God, and it took a commitment. And as we're going to see over the next few weeks, it was a commitment that led to tremendous fruitfulness. And it was just really exciting things that were truly Christ-centered as you look down through history. But it took her willingness to submit to Christ and to follow him, or submit to Yahweh and follow him. Now, I want to look briefly at the third scene in this, which leads us into next week's topic. The third scene is found in verse 22. It says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So here we have bookends to the story. At the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, you have famine in Bethlehem. Here at the end of Ruth chapter 1, you have a harvest time. At the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, there is increasing hopelessness, despair, and nightmare. At the end of Ruth chapter 1, there is now hope. There is new life. There is new commitment to God. And with commitment to God comes uh, great things. I mean, sometimes uncertainty as you follow him by faith. But you can trust that he has your best in mind when you were following him. Now, there are two key truths I want to point out as we wrap up today from Ruth chapter 1. One truth is that when our lives seem to be falling apart, God is still working out his plan. Now, you look at Naomi, you look at Ruth, the events here in Ruth chapter 1 were certainly not what they would have planned for themselves. I mean, I'm sure there were many times when both of them were just thinking, you know, God, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. I don't like this. I wish it was a different way. And there are times in our lives where we have that same type of thing. I, I think if we went around the room, we could all share things in our lives that we'd be like, you know what? I don't like this. This is hard. I wish this was different. If I were planning my life, I would do this differently. But we can trust that even when our lives seem to be falling apart, that God's still faithful and he is still working out his plan that's what he was doing here in the life of naomi and the life of ruth let me just fast forward about a thousand years just to give you a little glimpse of what god was working out here matthew chapter 1 contains a part of scripture that normally you would probably gloss right over it's a genealogy but let me read to you a portion of this genealogy it's the genealogy of jesus listing jesus ancestors Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 says, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, this Ruth we're looking at right here, was the great grandmother of King David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. See, God was working out something great. God was taking Naomi from Bethlehem to Moab. To meet Ruth, to bring Ruth back to Bethlehem so that Ruth could meet this man Boaz, so we'll see next week, so that they could have children, so that they could have King David as a grandchild, so that down through the centuries, King Jesus could come onto the scene with Ruth as one of his ancestors. I mean, at the time, there's no way you could, could possibly imagine that as you're looking at the sorrow and the grief and, and the decisions that were being made here in Ruth chapter 1. But that is what God was doing, and that is a promise that we have in our lives as well, that God, he's faithful. He will never leave us and never forsake us, and he will work everything to good together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We have those promises, and we see an illustration of God's faithfulness here in Ruth chapter 1. So we need to remember that when our lives seem to be falling apart, God is still working out his plan. And the second truth to remember is that following Jesus is a lifestyle of repentance. It requires a change. It requires uh, a decision that we're no longer going to follow our own way, but now follow God's way, doing what's right in his eyes rather than our eyes. Ruth had to make that decision. Orpah had to make that decision. Naomi had to make that decision. Elimelech had to make that decision. Everyone has to make that decision of, where am I going in life? Am I going to follow God, or am I going to follow a different path? And so every one of us needs to come to that point, ideally and hopefully, where we say, you know what, I'm going to follow Christ. Jesus came that we might have life. As we sang earlier, he is the one way to God because he alone died to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins. If we don't accept his gift of life, we're going to have to pay that death penalty ourselves. But if we do accept that gift, if we repent and turn back to him, we have the promise of new life. And we can be caught up in what God is doing in this world and on his path that leads not only to eternal life, but also to eternal significance. But that can only happen as we get ourselves on his path. Yesterday I was biking with our kids up to Belgium. There was Luxembourg Fest up there, and we wanted to get up there by 10 o'clock to make it for the parade. And thankfully, we made it and had a great time up there. On the way home, there was a little bit of chaos in the cart behind me where I'm pulling the kids. Chaos is a code word for meaning um, they weren't being very nice to each other. And so here I am going down the bike path on the way home, and. Um, so I'm going down the bike path probably 15 miles an hour. I'm looking back behind me trying to figure out what's going on, trying to get them back in line. And you you learn in driver's training, don't look off to the sides you're driving because what you do, you you naturally start pulling in that direction. So here I am all of a sudden, I'm looking backwards and I find myself riding at 15 miles an hour through weeds about this deep. And that's not really a very good scenario. And I try to start pulling the bike back up, but you know, what? it's hard when you're riding through weeds and dirt and grass and stuff like that. And um, I mean, weeds are getting stuck to the bike and hitting me in the legs and hitting the cart behind me. And it was kind of scary. I got the adrenaline rush very quickly there because I was thinking, okay, I can't get the bike back up here that quickly. There's a lip on the edge of the, uh, the bike path. And, I mean, I don't know if there's a hole down there. I don't know if there's a ditch or a rut that's going to lead me over into a tree. But I needed as quickly as I could to turn back and get myself on the safety of the path. That was essentially repentance. It was that shuv type of word of, of getting myself off this path that's, that's not going to be healthy, that could lead to destruction, and getting myself onto the path of safety, or the path where I need to be. And that's what we need to do with God As well, because there are times in our lives, even after we make that initial conversion to Christ, there are times where we still need to repent. Martin Luther talked about the importance of repentance being the lifestyle and everyday occurrence of Christians, because we all have those times where we get off the path, where we're going in a direction that we shouldn't go, where we um, are going in a dangerous way that we need to get back on the path that God has for us. And as we do so, we can have the guarantee that as we are in the middle of His will, That he will be accomplishing things in us and through us that we may not fully understand now. We may still have to be, we will still have to walk by faith and not by sight. But we have the promise of partnering with him and bringing his eternal purposes and kingdom here to this world. And we can have that hope that whatever happens in our lives, even if it's tragedy, even if it's hardship, even if it's things we don't understand, that he is faithful. And my prayer for each one of us is that we will be men and women who boldly and faithfully say yes to Jesus, whatever happens, whatever comes our way, and that, like Ruth, that we will see in the end it is not only worth it, but it far exceeds anything we could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are faithful and that you are a God who loves us, who will never leave us and never forsake us, a God who even uses the hard things of life in this broken world for our good and for your glory. God, I pray that you will increase our faith where our faith is weak. Lord, also increase our courage to follow you, even in the midst of a world um, that does not follow you. Even when our own selves say, you know what, we want to go a different direction. God, that we will be faithful to follow you. And that just like Ruth, as she committed herself to you, that we will experience the blessings that are, that are only possible from committing ourselves fully to you. We thank you for your love for us. And we want to say to this day that we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.